Today is a conversation that stemmed from our episode about Meek Mill, the artist who's been in endless court battles with a judge over his probation. It brought up a larger conversation about the criminal justice system and allowed me the opportunity to interview a friend and just really overall awesome person, Jason Flom. Jason is unique. He's personally responsible for launching acts like Kid Rock, Katy Perry, and Lord. The New Yorker described him as, quote, one of the most successful record people of the last 20 years. And so what does he do on his own time? Well, he helps people get out of prison, literally. Flom is known as a leading civilian expert on clemency and is personally responsible for freeing dozens of people who were wrongfully incarcerated. You can follow Jason on Twitter at It's Jason Flom to find out really the million other things he's up to. This is our conversation. Hello? Uh, Mr. Flom, how are you? Dr. Jenks, I presume? Uh, indeed it is. Indeed it is. How are you? I'm still alive and kicking, so that's a start. That's a start. Yeah, man, let's record. Let's rock. Let's fuck around and do some shit. <laughs> Um, I think you're okay. you're on speaker, it sounds like. Yeah, but I, I can be off speaker. I know one thing you speak about frequently is, and kind of bring up is this question that, that, I'll, that I'll ask you, are, are most prisons actually correctional facilities? Uh, not in this country. Um, you know, it's, um, I think they may have been intended to be so, but... It seems like something went horribly wrong over the past uh, couple of generations or more, and it turned the focus turned from rehabilitation to punishment. And um, it's I think there's a growing awareness of it, and there's a growing movement of committed people from all walks of life to address this situation because the inhumanity of it all is overwhelming. There's something that else that you've, you, you brought up, which is cross racial identification to someone who's never heard that. What does that mean? So what we've learned, um, over decades, um, uh, studying decades of research is that, or doing research of decades of however you want to phrase it, is that um, people are much less um, adept at identifying members of the opposite or, or of different races, I should say. There's no opposite. Um, so what that means is if, you know, if a white person witnesses a crime committed by a white person, there's a much better chance that they will correctly identify the perpetrator than there is if it's a, for instance, a white person trying to identify a black person or a Hispanic person trying to identify a white person. Um, I guess it's sort of logical. I don't know. Mm. Um, maybe not intuitive, but somewhat logical. Mm. And um, so, you know, we know that eyewitness identification is leading cause of wrongful convictions. It's also a, um, you know, it's just, it's just a wildly, um, imperfect practice. I mean, you, know, what, what, you can't not have eyewitness identification, right? Of course, you're going to use that in any justice system. I'm sure they use it in all justice systems. But, um, you know, the case with the Jennifer Thompson example mm -hmm. is such a profound example. Are you familiar with that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But actually, if, if you want to do a, a brief 
summary for those that don't. Actually, I can always loop them in. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so Jennifer Thompson, who it's just fresh on my mind because she was here with me last week, but she was called the perfect witness. And the reason they called her that was because she was a um, 21-ish year old college student in the Carolinas, I think North Carolina, sober, stayed home one night um, in her apartment by herself. The ultimate nightmare, a guy broke in, um, you know, raped her at knife point, threatened to kill her, et cetera, et cetera. And um, she studied every detail of his, every mannerism, every physical feature, everything, because the only thing she was thinking, she, she says, is, um, or was, if I live through this, I'm going to make sure that this guy goes to prison for the rest of his life so he can never hurt anybody else. And sure enough, they, several days later, they picked up a guy who was a black guy. She identified him in a lineup in a mugshot in the courtroom with a hundred percent certainty. And, you know, he was in her home for, I think, 25 minutes. So she had ample time to study him. And, uh, sure enough, uh, however many, I think it was 11 years later, it was proven with DNA that she was wrong and it was devastating obviously to him, but also to her. Mm. I mean, it turned her life upside down again. Mm. You know, she now had, she had had triplets. She had started a new life. And all of a sudden she went through another stage of horrendous grief and um, guilt and, and misery over having, you know, put not only misidentified this individual, Ronald Cotton, but also, you know, having, you know, by, by not her fault, but the fact is, as we know, that whenever you convict the wrong guy, the right guy remains free. Mm. And in this case, the perpetrator went on to rape uh, dozens of other women before he was caught. So, yeah, it, it's if she didn't get it right, it's hard to imagine who would. And so, you know, it's it's just a uh, it's something it's just something for juries, I think, to be aware of. You don't there's no reason to totally discount an eyewitness account. Right. But you have to, if that's the only evidence there is, you really have to think long and hard, whether that's enough to send someone to prison, maybe for the rest of their life. What's Jennifer up to now? Jennifer runs a thing called healing justice, Hmm. um, where she, you know, she had this incredible um, experience where Mr. Cotton, Ronald Cotton, reached out to her after he was exonerated and asked if they could meet, or I think she reached out to him and asked if they could meet. And he met her in a, in a church and, um, she asked if he would forgive him. And he said, I already did. And they became very close friends and they've been going around the country for years and years. They've been on 60 minutes. They wrote yeah. a book together called picking cotton. Right. And, um, They've gone around the country giving talks to anyone who will listen to them, but, you know, aiming to speak to law students, prosecutors, police departments um, to, you know, to spread this message and try to uh, prevent this from happening to other people. And then Healing Justice is an organization where she puts victims and uh, families and people who have been through the some some related experiences to what she experienced, put them together um, and, you know, tries to really, you know, I don't know, just patch things up is too light of a way to put it. Right, you can right. look at the website, healingjustice.org. Are there crime bills or legislation 
out there. I know there's there's talk about criminal justice reform is a bipartisan issue. Have you seen, as someone who's really an expert on this, any legislation that uh, is a step in the right direction? Yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, in the last election, there were bright spots all over the place. You know, you had um, Louisiana got rid of their non-unanimous jury verdict rule, which, of course, was insane that you could be convicted in Louisiana by a 10 to 2 ruling up until now. Now it has to be unanimous. Um, in, um, you know, of course the, the fact that marijuana is becoming, you know, every day there's progress in that fight to decriminalize marijuana. So that's great. Um, you know, Colorado was, became the first state to uh, abolish slavery, which I know that sounds crazy. Like what are we in 1865? (laughs) But, um, you know, they abolished slavery in all forms because up until now it's been legal if you're um, in custody of the state. Can you can you touch on that, for, uh, Jason? Because obviously most people are going to are, are thinking, well, what do you mean slavery just ended in Colorado? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when the uh, when slavery was abolished, they left it. There was a there was a big asterisk, which was that it was only abolished for free people. So that meant that. If you were incarcerated, you were still able to be treated as a slave. And of course, what what that led to very quickly was that, and we're talking about all those years ago, but um, people were, you know, primarily, well, like probably almost exclusively black males were being arrested for anything and everything for basically breathing, you Mm, know, for walking down the street without ID. Being unemployed was a crime. Um, you know, there were just a million, they, they created all these phony, you know, charges and then they would arrest people and put them to work, you know, cutting sugar cane or, you know, picking cotton or whatever it was that was driving the economy. So it was really, it's all driven by economics. When you think about it, there's an amazing professor named Jeffrey, um, Robinson, um, who, who speaks about the, the economic roots of racism, um, and, you know, it's, it's quite remarkable. So what's happened is over the years, as mass incarceration has taken hold, is that you have inmates who provide basically free labor to corporations that people would be surprised to know. I mean, there's everything from Starbucks coffee cups to some of Victoria's Secret products to, you know, of course, the proverbial license plates. So many things are made in prison and in prisons. And, you know, inmates are paid as little as four cents an hour. I mean, there's been a lot of, in, in Louisiana, they can be taxed on that too. So it's like two cents an hour. Um, and in um, California, of course, there's been a lot of attention recently to the fact that a lot of the fire crews were staffed by incarcerated people who were paid, I don't know, I can't remember if it was a dollar a day or a dollar an hour. It almost doesn't matter. Um, doing this you know, truly heroic work alongside the brave you know, men and women of the fire department um, so the, the only good thing about that is that it's brought, you know, attention to this, uh, crazy sort of carve out. Right. Mm. And, um, so yeah, so, so Colorado abolished that. So that's good mm. news. And of course, you know, then the, uh, the fact that in uh, Florida, the reenfranchisement of 1.4 million mm. people who have served their sentences 
it's just a tremendous development. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the idea that, you know, I hate the second punishment, I call it, the fact that when people get out, they get, you know, punished in so many different ways, and one of them is losing the right to vote. So, you know, again, progress. So sometimes I can't really help myself. I do very much enjoy sort of doing two things at once. And one way to do that is by listening to a book while, you know, going to work, going to the studio or working out. And to be honest, Audible is where so many inspiring voices, compelling stories open listeners up to new experiences and way of thinking, you know, what books do. Audible members now get more than ever before. Members choose three titles every month, one audiobook plus two Audible originals, which are pretty cool, that you can't hear anywhere else. Members also have unlimited access to more than 100 audio-guided fitness and meditation programs. Obviously, yours truly is into the meditation programs. Audible members can also get free access to a wide variety of newspapers delivered daily to the Audible app. So explore all of the ways listening on Audible can help improve your mind, body, and soul with entertainment, information, and inspiration. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial, and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals are free. Best thing, best thing is always free. Visit audible.com slash WRH or text WRH to 500-500. A book that I love and I think a lot of listeners of, of this show and in particular this episode will love is called The Confidence Game. It's, I love this book. It's the psychology of the con and why we fail for it every time. New York Times bestselling book and it is on Audible. Don't forget, start listening with a 30-day Audible trial and your first audiobook plus two Audible originals are free. Visit audible.com slash WRH or text, kind of like this, makes it easy, text WRH, as in what really happened, WRH to 500-500. How is the rate or the numbers of people in the United States in jail or prison changed through the years? Oh, it's preposterous. We... Um, I don't know the exact year that they usually reference, but something like 35 years ago, we had approximately 300,000 people in prison. And then now it's between 2.2 and 2.3 million people behind bars while we're speaking right now. And it's such a staggering number. And inside those numbers, is, is there's so many other numbers that would, you know, I think freak out most, freak most people out. For instance, Forgetting for a second the 700% plus increase, um, you, know, you have 450,000 people behind bars because they can't afford to buy their freedom, quite literally, right? Because they just, they're in jail because they can't post bail. Right. Uh, some of them as little as $100. But if you don't have it, it might as well be a million dollars. Right. So that's something. That's, that's, that's a disgusting, disgraceful aspect of our system. And then there's um, the numbers. Like, people talk about the fact that we have 4.4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population. What they don't talk about that they should talk about is that we have 33% of the world's female prison population. 
Like, mm. what does that? E- how could I mean? That's ridiculous. Little America, like America, we only have less than five percent of the world's population. How in the world can we have one point? I mean, one third of all the female prisoners in the world. What are we doing? And you know what? Those people have in common. Those women. What's Most that? of them have families, children. Right. Right. Right? right, who who rely on them for everything from love to support to financial to anything, and those kids are victims as well, and they're going to probably end up in the system or homeless or God knows what. It's a it's a vicious cycle. These women and people say, well, why are all these women being locked up? Well, it's not because American women are more evil than women overseas, right? Do you think? Right. No, it's because we lock them up for ridiculous crimes, you know, for for drug crimes that shouldn't be crimes for. Um, you know, accessory or, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's nuts. I mean, and, and drug crimes are the, you know, the number one driver of the, you know, the explosion of women in prison. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just got to stop. There's, there's certainly a better way. And I don't know. And the statistics on black males is obviously staggering. Oh, that's the that's the worst one of all, if you think about it, right? Because, and this I've I've fact checked this because every time I say it, it sounds insane. So hmm. I say to myself, "Wait, did you just say that? Because that sounds insane." <laughs> <laughs> like Flum, what are you talking about? But the uh-huh. fact remains that we lock black males up at six times the rate per capita of South Africa at the height of apartheid. Wow. So, uh, wow. Uh, what? Like right. what, you know, and the numbers inside those numbers, the number, like when you look at um, black men without a high school diploma, I think there's, a, there's some crazy number, like 68% of them will do a year in jail by the 30th birthday. Like it's ridiculous right. Right, right. in the numbers of, of just, uh, I mean, over, I'm, don't quote me on the 68% number, no, but it's very high. Yeah. I don't know if it was 58%. It's insane. That's for black men, not women, black men without a high school education. Um, so that goes back to, you know, education, right? Which plays a part in all this too, socioeconomic stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's all, you know, just very hard for me to to process. But the good news is I have a lot of energy and there are more people allied around this today than ever. It's amazing. I lunched today with a, with a reverend of one of the biggest churches in New York City who's totally committed to reforming the system. You know, we have, so we have, we have church people, we have billionaires, we have people on the left, we have the Cokes, we have like, it's a crazy alliance. You have rappers, right? Yeah. You have, uh, um, you know, conservatives, Mm. libertarians, you know, there's, you know, the, this is going to change because there's too many dedicated, brilliant, um, you know, uh, influential people who are, you know, coming at it from all different angles and, and we're going to, we, we're going to fix it because we have to fix it. I mean, how, you know, th- there's only two ways to look at it, right? Mm. Andrew, either mm. you have to, when you look at the fact that we lock people up at 14 times the rate per capita of Japan, right? They have less than a hundred thousand people in prison in Japan. Hundred thousand people. We have more more than that in, in many states. I was going to say, right? right? Yeah. And Japan is a pretty big country, right? Right. They have all, I don't know if they have half the population we do, but they have a lot of people there. So the only way you can look at it is you have to say there's two possibilities. Either we have 
people that are 14 times as evil as the people in Japan, mm. which I don't buy that, right. or we're doing something really wrong. They don't have a crazy crime rate. You know, the, the, there's no real, the, there's no evidence that shows that locking people up in large numbers or in any numbers reduces crime. I think it actually is the opposite. I think that mm. social scientists, most of them would agree that it, it actually increases the rate of crime because when they come out, what are they going to do? Right. Mm. You come out, if you serve your whole sentence, like for instance, let's just take New York State. If you serve your sentence, right, we're not talking about you paroled out. Mm. So you got sentenced to 10 years, you come out after 10 years. You get $40 and you emerge from prison with $40, maybe a bus ticket or maybe they just drop you off at the bus station. Mm. You don't have ID. What are you supposed to do? Like, right. And if you've served a long period of time and your family has died or moved on or you don't have any family, where do you go? Right. Like, what are your chances of not recidivating in that situation? Um, you know, it, it's, it's all like, it, it's exactly built to fail. And so, like I said, I am firmly of the belief that mass incarceration is, it makes our country less safe. And, and real quick, Jason, how long have you been doing this now for working in this world? 25 years. And what brought you, I'm sure I can look this up online, but what brought you into it? A story I read in the newspaper um, about a kid named um, Stephen Lennon. He wasn't a kid. He was 32 years old. He was my age at the time. Mm. When he was serving 15 to life for nonviolent first offense, cocaine possession charge. And it just, it upset every um, everything in me, it just, it just, it, my whole moral compass started spinning out of control. I was like, what, what is, how does this make any sense? I didn't know anything about mandatory sentencing at that time, but I knew that that didn't make any sense. Right. So, well, one thing led to another, make a long story short, mm. I called his mother on the phone cause her name was in the story <laughs> and she was a homemaker in Rome, New York. And I offered my help, and I ended up getting the only the criminal defense lawyer I knew, a guy named Bob Kalina, who represented my rock stars when they would get in trouble. And since I had Skid Row and Stone Temple Pilots, and they were getting arrested twice a week, I had <laughs> them on right. speed dial. So I called Bob, and I was like, wow, what are you, this is insane. What are we going to do about this? And he's like, it's nothing you can do. The Rockefeller drug laws. And I was like, oh man, you got to help. So mm. he, one way, like I said, I'll make it as short as I can. He took the case yeah. pro bono as a favor to me. And months and months later, we ended up getting a hearing. And I flew up with Bob to Malone, New York. And I still remember I was wearing purple Doc Martens. Don't ask me why. But <laughs> um, in spite of that, the judge, and I had a mullet, in spite of that, <laughs> The judge ruled in our favor, and he banged that gavel down and said that the sentence was being reduced from an A1 to an A2, and that uh, Stephen was to be freed. And I was sitting there in the courtroom, just not even, like, it was an out-of-body experience. It was insane. I was sitting there holding his mother's hand, and it was a type of joy that I had never experienced before. So mm. I, I was hooked and I ended up calling, uh, I learned about families against mandatory minimums, which is F A M M.org families against mandatory minimums. And I ended up getting involved with them. I joined their board. We're actually hosting a fundraiser for them this Thursday. So it never stops. Mm, yeah. And, um, from there, um, 
you know, it's, it's been, you know, then I, then I found out about, uh, you know, I heard, I saw a story on TV about, uh, the innocence project, about a case of a guy named David Keating, Keating or Keaton, I forgot. But anyway, he had been sentenced to death and scheduled to be executed. And the innocence project had, you know, found the DNA mm-hmm. and had it tested and proven that he was innocent. And, and not only wasn't he executed, he was, he was freed. And that was when I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> now I know what to do with my life, you know? Well, Sir Jason Flom, if reunited people in America, would you be knighted? <laughs> if they knighted people in America, I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think that's happening. Nor do I think I'd be on the top of the list. But you know, you might be. Um, you le- you at the very least get an OBE, which is the equivalent, you know, one under. But I think you'd get knighted. You know, maybe it could be like Lord Flom that has a ring to it. It does have a fucking ring to it. Jeez. Right. Yeah, it Um, does. So I don't know. Um, I don't really, you know, listen, I get the interesting thing about this is I call it selfish altruism, right? Because I get so much out of it. I mean, I consider it a a tremendous privilege to be in a position to be able to make a difference in the lives of people who can't do it for themselves. And, um, you know, I want to do. I want to do it every day and I do, I try to do something every day mm. and, you know, being around the exonerees themselves and people who've been through this. Yeah. Which you really do is just an amazing, amazing, it's a gift. I mean, you know, you take a guy like John Huffington, I've been quoting him a lot lately. I was with him in DC. I was actually honored at the dinner for the, the gala for the Southern center for human rights. And, um, John came John was sentenced to, he had a double death sentence in Maryland and, um, he served 32 years, Good almost God. all of it on death row. Ultimately was forced to take a plea just to get out and, uh, totally innocent. Jeez. And we're talking, somebody says to him, aren't you bitter? Why aren't you bitter? And he says, man, he goes, that's why the rear view mirror is small and the windshield's big. And I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> How about that sports fans? Right. I mean, yeah, there I, you get, go. I get these, I get these pearls of wisdom from these guys. Yeah. Well, on the regular, you know, well, it's interesting. I found a lot of people who are innocent spend a great deal of time reading books while they're behind bars. Yeah. And a lot of them talk about, isn't it Marcus Garvey? I hear a lot of them reference hmm. um, as having really made a huge difference in their lives. Oh, interesting. I'm not familiar with his work, only by association. Yeah, no, I'm looking so, at it huh. um, Yeah, uh, but books, uh, you know, without those, and education behind bars is so important. Mm. So, um, I think I mean, we have to get back to that, too. And that goes back to the beginning of the conversation, right? It yeah. should be, which they should be correctional right. facilities. You know, it should be... Um, you know, we should, they're just, they're just people. That's where, you know, that's where I lose the, the plot. There you, know? you go. Right. It's like, these are just people and they're Americans and there's somebody's brother or sister or mother, father, son, go. daughter, whatever, there cousin, you, go. There you, you go. know, yep. friend. And they're just people. But the minute they grab you, it's like you stop being a person. Hmm. You lose all your person stuff, you know, you, you, yeah. and your humanity is irrelevant anymore. It's just, you're just a, somebody to be, you know, sort of processed. And it's gross. And so, um, but it's fixable. And we're going to fix it. That's why we're here talking about it now. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of What Really Happened, produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. My name is Andrew Jenks. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. And if you have a moment, I'd really appreciate it if you go to the Apple Podcasts page and leave a kind review, uh, a rating. It really does go a long way. Thanks for listening.